0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. Coming up later this hour, New York City Council Speaker Adrienne Adams will get her side of her dispute with Mayor Adams, no relation, over how much NYPD officers should need to document their encounters with New Yorkers. And we'll take your calls from anyone who's had experience on the NYPD, current or past, and anyone who's had encounters with the NYPD to help us report this story as the council considers overriding the mayor's veto. This is the biggest point of contention during the whole Eric Adams' administration and Adrian Adams' administration, leading city council. So we're going to get into it with a speaker uh, who is good enough to be willing to come on and get into it with us and with you. So that and more with Speaker Adams coming up. Also today, a call-in for parents who subsidize your young adults' finances. How much, how come, Till what age... And how different from your parents and you. There seems to be some generational change going on, so we'll get to that. But we start here. Let's recognize some of the best journalism of the last year. Last night at Columbia University, they handed out this year's DuPont Columbia Awards for excellent in excellence in broadcast and digital journalism. Winners included ABC News for its expose of the plastics recycling industry, New Hampshire Public Radio for its investigation into sexual misconduct at a local addiction treatment network. The reporter even faced vandalism and other retaliation for her work. The six-hour Ken Burns' Lynn Novick documentary on PBS called The U.S. and the Holocaust, and others that we'll mention as well. We will talk to New Yorker magazine contributor and Columbia Journalism School Dean Jelani Cobb, who presided over the awards ceremony last night. But let's kick it off with a short excerpt. From the ABC News investigation into what really happens with plastics recycling, the show was called Trashed, and this 40-second excerpt refers to what's called trackers of some of that plastics recycling material.
0: After the drop-offs, we spent months monitoring each tracker's location multiple times a day. Here's where
1: one of those air-tagged bags ended up. The tracker is pinging whenever a mobile phone or digital device was near. We checked every location the trackers pinged from on their journey and determined they likely did not encounter plastic bag sorting en route, one
0: that could have potentially separated a tracker from a bag. One of the first trackers to move was one we deployed at a Target in Kingston, New York, and it showed up about a week later, deep inside a New York landfill, an outcome that would happen again and again around the country.
1: Very interesting way to see... If the plastics were actually moving to their alleged recycling destinations, that from Trashed on ABC News, now a DuPont Columbia Award winner. We'll hear from some of the other winners as we go. And with us now is New Yorker magazine contributor and Columbia Journalism School Dean Jelani Cobb, who presided over the award ceremony last night for these awards, considered the most prestigious in broadcast and digital journalism. Some people call them the Pulitzers of broadcast news. Jelani, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. How are you, Brian? I'm doing okay, thanks. Um, and we'll talk more generally about the, the awards in a minute, but since we opened with that clip, want to talk talk first about Trashed and their investigative method of using what that clip referred to as trackers and, and why the uh, DuPont Committee recognized it?
0: Sure. Uh, you know, I think, uh, and outside of the obvious implications of this, in terms of our environment and in, in terms of uh, you know, pollution and all, all those other kinds of things, you know, this is just a great showcase of the fundamental journalistic process, which is to ask a question uh, and then devise a way uh, to get the information that allows you to answer that question. Uh, and here, it's, it's just a straightforward, what happens to this stuff uh, when we put it in a recycling bin and uh, how could we find that out? And so, for the team to actually provide this uh, this service, uh, we now know, you know, what happens in many instances uh, with materials that are, are billed as being recycled, but that appears to not be the case, uh, at least in the vast majority uh, of the instances. And so, uh, we thought that that was, uh, it was, you know, meeting uh, the criteria that we have, which is uh, deeply researched and, and well told. Uh, and, you know, this story... Fell right into both of those categories.
1: Did they get? Are you familiar enough with it to say uh, if they got to where the plastics really wind up uh, in many cases, and who benefits from they're not really going to the recycling uh, destinations that they're supposed to go to?
0: Well, yeah, there are you know kind of villains in uh, in the story, but one of the things that we found, as you heard in the clip, I mean that you see more of in the story. Uh, is that much of this is just uh, you know sent to landfills uh, as opposed to being sent to recycling centers? Because uh, it's cheaper. But, well, yeah, it appears to be that there's a, a profit incentive, you know, you know, as opposed to actually you know, the resources and expenses that would go into recycling this material. Uh, it's just collected and then disposed of.
1: And ABC also won for another environmental documentary about the struggle in various parts of the world from parts of the United States to South Sudan to have access to clean water. What right. might a viewer learn from that documentary?
0: Well, you know, as we're looking at uh, the, the effects of climate change, one of the things that we're seeing uh, is, is, is not, uh, you know, a kind of one-to-one uh, re- relationship. Like some places or many places have less water. Uh, And so, you know, we've dealt with droughts, you know, and particularly in the southwest and in the west of this country. Uh, But, you know, in other places, people are dealing with the opposite, you know, torrential deluges, uh, you know, that have made uh, terrain all but uninhabitable. Uh, And so, you know, that story was particularly important uh, because it highlighted... Uh, one of the things that you know, we often don't talk about, which is that the brunt of this is being experienced by people who are in the global south yeah. uh, and people who are in the developing world. Uh, and uh, one uh, unintentional uh, outcome of this uh, was that about $5 million was raised uh, for the U.N. Uh, food support program hmm. uh, to be delivered in places that have been uh, really severely impacted by you know, drastically increased rainfall.
1: We'll go into some of the other winners as we go, and as I said here, a few more clips of the winners, but would you take a step back now and talk about the DuPont Columbia Awards generally? What's the purpose of having these awards, and what specifically does the committee look for to honor?
0: So uh, the committee looks for stories that are, uh, as I mentioned, uh, deeply researched and well told, uh, also in the public interest. uh, And uh, you know the awards really are here to recognize work uh, that wasn't being recognized prior. This is in the broadcast uh, you know, arena, uh, and so we are. Uh, we've had the the uh, awards here at Columbia since 1968, uh, so it's very much a tradition uh, for us here. Uh, and you know one of the exciting things that we got to announce this year was that the Jesse Ball Dupont Fund. Uh, which uh, supports uh, the awards uh, created by Jessie Ball DuPont uh, to honor her husband, Alfred I. DuPont, uh, had, those awards have been endowed uh, with a $10 million gift to, to make sure that the awards are uh, able to be uh, you know, a, a perpetual thing uh, into the future. And so uh, that was our big development and our big announcement this year about the, the uh, DuPont Columbia
1: Awards. Interesting. And, you know, you call them broadcast awards. Before the web scrambled all the categories, um, these were simply broadcast journalism awards for radio and television as differentiated from print journalism awards like the Pulitzer's. And I see you're still very much giving them to... TV and radio outlets, but now it seems like everyone does everything in order to survive. Sure. Newspapers make videos. Magazines produce podcasts and compete with radio stations. So how do you determine what's eligible?
0: Well, you know, also, you know, those conversations happen yearly. So, you know, podcasts didn't exist, but now podcasts are also eligible. And, you know, I should say this goes in both directions. You know, the the Pulitzers uh, reconsider what their criteria are, you know, right. the... Magazines are now allowed you know, for in, as entries when they weren't previously. And you know, every year, uh, just because there is so much uh, digital innovation you know, happening right now, uh, we sit down and say, how can we uh, best serve the communities that we are uh, evaluating and the work that we're trying to highlight? Uh, and so uh, that's how we've, um, uh, we've come to the categories that we have now. And, and, and likely, those categories will evolve and develop in the future. Yeah, for sure.
1: Uh, All right, let's play a clip from one of the winners accepting an award last night. Lauren Chulgen from New Hampshire Public Radio. Got to give props to a public radio station Mm -hmm. that earned an award for its investigation and her investigation into sexual misconduct at a local addiction treatment network. The reporter, Lauren Chulgen, even faced vandalism and other retaliation for her work as she references in her acceptance speech here.
2: A lot has been written about the vandalism we faced, the lawsuit, as you heard, but, and how dark of a moment it is for journalism to see that we face such repercussions. But I'm choosing to see this as a triumph. I'm choosing to remember that women chose journalism when they didn't have an answer to such a big unsolvable problem. They chose telling us their stories when they felt they had no answers. They taught us that recovery is difficult and beautiful and that it obviously should not come, it should not be a time to be exploited.
1: So Jelani, would you speak about the content of Lauren Children's work as well as the retaliation that she faced?
0: Sure. Uh, and so it, the 13th step was a, a really difficult um, really difficult uh, story uh, that Lauren uh, reported uh, just, you know, superbly. Can I I
1: just jump in uh, and and say to clarify for the listeners about the title, uh, The 13th Step. So that refers to a 12-step program, Mm -hmm. and here comes the ugly 13th unwanted step.
0: Right. Uh, And so it had become a kind of dark inside joke to people, which was uh, that the exploitation and abuse uh, of of people – uh, who were in a vulnerable state uh, because they were in recovery and attempting to uh, to grapple with that problem, uh, had become like a, a 13th step. So um, that story uh, generated, uh, you know, a huge response. And in turn, uh, you know, the reporter, Lauren Chulgin, uh, had dealt with vandalism personally, uh, dealt with being doxed, uh, and dealt with being uh, subjected to a lawsuit, uh, which was ultimately dismissed. Uh, and uh, she did this all in the, the effort of, of telling, uh, you know, what these women had gone through uh, in their attempt to gain their sobriety. And so that was what one of the things we thought uh, was really—and and also, you know, the I should say the DuPont Columbia Awards uh, have consistently uh, had an eye toward local news uh, and toward highlighting stories that, you know, really should get a much bigger spotlight uh, nationally. Uh, and so this story was really one of the important ones
1: that we celebrated this year. And in that clip that we played of of Lauren, um, she said, I'm choosing to remember that women chose journalism Mm -hmm. when they didn't have an answer to such a big unsolvable problem. And I wonder if you would take that (laughs) cue and talk about the role of journalism generally, which we can too often take for granted, and, and why she referenced it like that there.
0: Yeah, you know, Brian, I think that really applied for all of the stories in one way or another Hmm. uh you know the the kind of through line were people who were in dire straits uh and who generally hoped that telling their stories might bring some sort of change uh and you know we had a a story uh from uh abc on uh, the aftermath of the taliban excuse me the frontline story uh, on the aftermath of the the taliban taking over in afghanistan uh, and women who faced like Im- immediate physical consequences uh, for talking to a westerner, for certainly talking to media, were still saying we're being abused. Uh, these are people who are talking uh, in front of you know hidden cameras and so on. Uh, the entire uh, interview having to be a kind of surreptitious interaction, and they really felt that the risk of being abused, beaten, or worse. Uh, had to be counterbalanced by the importance of telling the world what was happening. Uh, and so time and time again, you know, if we have doubts about journalism or if we're skeptical about journalism, uh, it's always important to hear the other half of the story, which is that there are people who are placing a profound degree of faith in journalism as a remedy for the problems that they are confronting at, the, at that moment.
1: I don't know if you're familiar with, an, uh, uh, familiar enough with, with Lauren's piece to know, or to, the, the aftermath, to know about the doxing that's been referred to that she faced. Doxing is in the news for other reasons these days. Um, and a lot of people still don't know what that really is or what that means. Are you up on that in this case to describe yeah, it at all? Uh,
0: yeah, I don't know all the, the particulars of what happened uh, with Lauren, but I can tell you that you know, even in the journalism school is something that we're teaching about, uh, you know, for our journalists to be, uh, you know, aware of and to anticipate, uh, which is that, you know, often people will uh, do a story uh, if someone doesn't like what you reported or or doesn't like the story, the way the story, uh, you know, has highlighted something they did or or whatever, they can uh, get access to all of your public records and uh, put those out on the internet. Uh, which includes incredibly personal uh, information, uh, you know, people's addresses, uh, people's workplaces, like, you know, all sorts of uh, people's cell phone numbers, or social media profiles, uh, and that lends itself toward you know, targeted harassment, uh, including, in, in many instances, and I don't know if this happened with Lauren, but uh, as a matter of fact, I believe this did actually happen with Lauren, uh, but you know, people showing up uh, at your door, uh, you know, because they know where you live or, or driving past your residence uh, in, in an effort to intimidate you or prevent you from uh, continuing to do your work. Uh, and so that's something that we're very clear about. And you know, even in the building you know, now at, at the journalism school, uh, we talk about the steps that you need to take to protect and, and lock down your information when you're reporting on sensitive subject matter. So unfortunately, that's just part of the landscape of uh, doing digital journalism at this point.
1: Yeah. And this is the world we're increasingly living in, right? I mean, you're the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia. We don't have to get into it in this conversation, but some Columbia students were doxxed uh last fall in connection with Mideast related protests that they were engaged in. And I and it also made me think that there was Donald Trump on the witness stand yesterday in the defamation case where he was found guilty of sexually assaulting someone, A. Jean Carroll, and he used his few minutes on the stand under oath to say he didn't ask anyone to threaten Carroll because Mm -hmm. people did, even though the earlier jury found that she was the victim. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if New Hampshire Public Radio saw that as a sign of our difficult times for journalists and others alike. I think you were just indicating some of the ways that it obviously is, but it even made me think of what Donald Trump chose to use as three minutes on the witness stand to testify about yesterday.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's just a kind of metaphor for the much bigger problem. Uh, you know, we look at uh, from, you know, a person who occupied the highest office in the land, uh, to, you know, a, a guy living in stereotypically in his mom's basement. Uh, and, you know, the through line between the two of them is that you can find someone that you dislike, uh, particularly someone who's operating in the media world and, uh, you know, or someone whom you've declared to be the enemy of the people uh, and make their life difficult and make their work uh, that much more difficult. And I also think that that is a testament to the level of commitment uh, that, you know, these journalists are willing uh, to, to bring uh, in order to make sure that these stories get told, I mean, Lauren could have uh, just uh, hung up her microphone and gone and done something else. Uh, that's not what she did. You know, she chose to stick with this story, and so I think that needed to be celebrated.
1: So let me try something with you on the phones here, um, because you know this is a tough time for journalists and a tough time for young people who are choosing a career, a professional path. Uh, to decide to be journalists. There are so many layoffs at news mm-hmm. organizations these days. That's, that's often what we hear of, not to mention doxing and other things. And um, I'm going to ask you, before we play another clip of a DuPont Columbia Award winner uh, from last night, which is going to be Lynn Novick, and Burns' partner, in their latest documentary. Um, but I'm going to open up the phones and invite, just in case we have anybody out there, People who are currently attending any university journalism program. Any of uh, Jelani Cobb's students out there right now want to call in and tell us, why are you going into journalism at this time? 212-433-WNYC. Anyone at the Newmark School of Journalism at CUNY. Anyone at NYU. Anyone listening anywhere around the country who's in J-School, I did it at Ohio State, any Buckeyes out there uh, are talking about uh, why you're going into journalism these days, or anyone else, any journalism students, or anyone who's even the parent of a journalism student, or considering going to J-School, journalism school, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Tell us why you find this profession meaningful enough to take the various uh, risks involved to get into. 212-433-9692, call or text. And can I ask you, Jelani, to put on your dean cap for a second and talk about who you do see these last few years coming through sure. the J School program? Sure. Uh, so,
0: I mean, one of the things about you know, the journalism school uh, here at Columbia is that we're an international institution. Uh, so we have students in any given year anywhere between thirty and thirty-five states uh, that are represented you know, in terms of our student body, uh, and then we're just represented globally, you know, in terms of you know students. Uh, so we'll have students, you know, significantly from uh, from China, significantly from Japan. Uh, from India, uh, from the U.K., uh, you know, certainly to our, our neighbors to the north in Canada, uh, and like, like many institutions, like many graduate schools, uh, graduate uh, undertakings, now uh, we have you know a very strong representation of women uh, in the building, uh, and so and you know typically the majority of our student body uh, is female, and so uh, I think the other through line uh, that I see here is that these are people who are not really daunted by the landscape. Uh, you know, they believe in you know, the power of journalism. They believe that there is uh, a way uh, to make a difference in the world by doing the kind of work that they're doing. And I, I think that they probably, you know, temperamentally, uh, are you know, probably closer to the school of social work, you know, if you think about uh, the sense of wanting to do right in the world and to help the most vulnerable. Uh, recognizing that it may not be the most remunerative um, undertaking, uh, but you think that there is something that's worthwhile uh, for this field. Uh, And I think that's been a kind of shared temperament uh, that we've seen. Also, you know, one of the things that I'll point out is that looking at the landscape, uh, of you know journalism and the particularly the employment landscape of journalism, uh, you know we've been moving aggressively at Columbia to make uh, you know sc- this school more accessible. Uh, and we just launched a program, a loan repayment assistance program, uh, so that you know our graduates who are working in nonprofit news can get up to fifty thousand dollars of their loan debt repaid, uh, mm-hmm. and that's just you know the first step. You know we're trying to make sure that. Uh, as the business model for journalism changes, the business model
1: for journalism education changes as well. Yeah, and the other big news in that category this week is that uh, the J School at CUNY just announced with another big grant from Craig Newmark that uh, they're planning to go tuition free. So I'm not going to ask you if Columbia is going to compete, uh, but mm-hmm. it's but it's well. An no, you this, so I, should, move. I should say oh, it, it's can. a consequential
0: move. It's a consequential move, and I say congratulations to them. Uh, you know, and I, I've never looked at this as a kind of competitive thing. You know, we, I think we're not competing with each other. We're Mutually competing uh, with the world in which journalism has to take place. Uh, and so, you know, I sent a text message congratulating uh, the dean there, who is my, um, who's a Columbia Journalism School alum and my right. colleague at the New Yorker as well. Um, dean but, you know, Uh yeah. Dean Mikofsky, yeah. And so, uh, you know, congratulations to her. And I think we're all uh, trying to make a landscape in which journalism is a more uh, viable career uh and so that's what we're we're engaged in
1: and here as it happens is one of their students Willa in Manhattan you're on WNYC hello willa
3: hi Brian. um yeah i'm a journalism student at CUNY Newmark i actually i'm i deferred a year cuz the engagement program that i was enrolled in was like suspended um uh-huh. but yeah i i wanted to share that At first, when I went into journalism, um, I've never had like an idea of what I wanted to do with my life. I just know that I'm really curious and I like to talk to people. So I was like, well, instead of being a bartender, you know, maybe I could channel that into journalism. But I had this really like optimistic, um, kind of naive view of like, oh, if we all talk to each other, we'll all find some sort of mutual understanding. And that's kind of been shut down. I still want to believe that, but... I think that mostly these days i've just been inspired by um the new ways that journalism is being shaped by people in my generation I'm, I'm 23 and there's like channel five andrew callahan and other people on social media who create a lot of like content that's it's funny but it's also really stark um and like really draws attention to like mm-hmm. the individual experiences of people and i think that That's really important, especially, like, for our generation. We are on our phones a lot, but we do, I think, um, have a really strong connection with humanity and, like, other people's feelings and a really great sense of dark humor. So I kind of just want to explore and contribute to that. And also, of course, like, I grew up listening to you, so... Yeah. That's going to be as well. <laughs>
1: I'm glad. And uh, that's really inspiring the way you're putting it out. And also uh, talking about the, uh, the little known bartender to journalist pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> well, <if> that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you very much and good luck. Uh, let Just, us know when you get out. Jelani, you wanted to say
0: something? Yeah, I did want to say something. And, and you know, I would say to the caller, um, please hold on to that idea uh, that she described as naive uh, because that's what we're all holding on to. Uh, And, you know, going back to the DuPont uh, Columbia Awards, that's what we were celebrating last night, that these stories, uh, which began with a simple observation, all of them, uh, and they culminated in uh, well-told stories that actually did make a difference. Uh, And so not every story does, if I'm just being brutally honest. Uh, Not every story on that same subject does. Uh, But enough stories that are done well enough Actually, do move the needle, uh, and you know. Aside from that, I'll say that uh, you know the the bartender and journalist profession. To your point. Uh, share a whole lot more in common than I think people probably recognize.
1: No doubt. Uh, talking to people and trying to make them one way or another loose enough to open up to you, right? <laughs> right um, exactly. Lisa in West New York in Jersey wants to comment on one of the winners we talked about before, uh, the ABC News investigation of what really happens to plastics that you think are going to be recycled. Lisa, you're on WNYC. Hello.
2: Thank you so much, Brian. And I just want to say that my call is precipitated by what I noticed you doing recently, which is saying, uh, does anybody want to help report that story? And so you bring in the listeners to the reporters to, um, you know, to, to, to do better on the subject matter. Now, we have in this area, we've had um, groups working on plastics. Our local officials have told us. That's garbage. Just throw it out, you know, because we we get a lot of those newspaper bags and things like that. Just throw it out. Now, had we been invited to report the story, uh, the ABC could have done even a a better job or Columbia University could have reported it or whatever. But I just wanted to kind of pull all those things together. You know, let's have people report along with the, the college students and the professionals, etc.,
1: cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for noticing, uh, which you accurately quoted. That I do sometimes invite listeners in by saying, "Help us report this story with your yes, personal yes. experiences," and that's you know our attempt to use a talk show not just for people to spout off when they call in, but literally to use a talk show as an act of journalism and have the public that we have the privilege of being able to hear from by the, you know, the tap of your phone uh, to help report various stories. We're going to do that in our next segment too with Speaker Adrian Adams on police stops. But Lisa, do you want to give us any particular detail about what you see happening in your community with plastics recycling that you would tell a reporter?
2: Um, the local officials re- really aren't committed to the issue. Um, we, we have a couple of recycling bins, but it's nothing like New York. Um, it's not even healthy. Um, and people can't, can't get to it and can't use it. But the thing what, for me was I get all these newspapers and the bags say recyclable and it, and it's not because there's no place that will accept these uh, they're called sleeves, newspaper sleeves, and uh, they're horrible, and they're going to last for how many years? So had we, and there is an organization here, uh, Beyond Plastics, so we're con- we're concerned about it, and we'd like to, uh, you know, make sure this doesn't end up in a landfill. If we could, if we could uh, have somebody say to us, help us report this story, you know, it could be even a better story.
1: Lisa, thank you very much. Uh, listener writes in a text message as my guest for another few minutes is Jelani Cobb, Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University and if you're just joining us, he presided over the DuPont Columbia awards for excellence in broadcast journalism last night. And we're talking about some of those winners and we're talking about journalism and journalism school. Uh, Listener writes, my son graduated from Columbia School of Journalism two years ago. It restores my hope for the future and democracy when I hear of the work the students are doing. So there's an A plus for you and your crew, Jelani. And Listener writes, I have a quick question for your guest. In a country where the majority of adults read at a seventh grade level, how does your guest see journalist's role in reaching a broad audience?
0: Well, you know, I think that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure if if it is that everyone, you know, on average reads at a seventh grade level, but one of the things uh, that, you know, is crucial and one of, I think, the virtues of, of especially print journalism has been that it is written in a way that is accessible, you know. That a person, and that's democratic, actually. Uh, that the information that people need in order to make decisions about their lives, and most fundamentally, make decisions about their government, should be accessible to everyone. Uh, and you know, when you're listening to a podcast or watching a news story, uh, when we uh, say at the Dupont Awards, uh, the Dupont Columbia Awards. Uh, you know, deeply researched and well-told, you know, the well-told part of it uh, it means people being able to understand, you know, what's happening here. Uh, And so I I really think that that's a virtue. Uh, Sometimes we lament and we kind of wring our hands about it, but uh, that's one of the better things that we do.
1: When I was in J-School, there was a cartoon that got posted of an editor telling their reporters, eschew obfuscation. (laughs) <laughs> which translates as avoid confusing language <laughs> in confusing language. So there's that accessibility uh, lesson. You could find that cartoon if it still exists and uh, post it at the J school building. Uh, all right. We're going to end on this. Ken Burns is still winning awards. I see along with his filmmaking partner, Lynn Novick Their six-hour PBS film was the U.S. and the Holocaust. Here's Lynn Novick from the award ceremony last night.
2: We started this project back in 2015 in a very different world. As we were making the film, we all saw just how fragile our democracy can be and how important it is to tell the truth about our fast. The series ends with a quote from Guy Stern, who passed away last month at 101. He was lucky enough to escape Nazi Germany as a teenager, come to America serve in the army, and go back to help liberate Europe. And this is what he says. We have seen the nadir of human behavior, and we have no guarantee that it won't recur. If we can make that clear and graphic and understandable, not as something to imitate, but as a warning of what can happen to human beings, then perhaps we have one shield against its recurrence.
1: Lynn Novick, who's not as well known as Ken Burns, but probably should be. They've made basically all of what we call the Ken, Do- Ken Burns documentaries together. So what did Ken and Lynn add to our understanding of the Holocaust from the U.S. side of the Atlantic um, that led the DuPont Columbia Committee to give them this award?
0: So, I mean, that's a really exhaustive, um, you know, examination of the issue. Uh, and, you know, you know, i you know, delved into this uh, before I even knew it was in contention, uh, and uh, was consistently impressed with you know their their the way that they elucidate policy, uh, the way that they elucidate perception, uh, and the way that they elucidate the consequences uh, for the actions or lack thereof. Uh, you know, for people to take uh, in the midst of the, uh, the Holocaust as it was unfolding. Uh, you know, one of the elements about this that is uh, unsettling historically and certainly unsettling uh, in the contemporary context because of the echoes was the great deal of sympathy uh, there was for fascism uh, and overt uh, anti-semitism in the United States in the 1930s. Uh, And so obviously uh, we have seen a resurgence of this and a kind of resurrection of some of those ideas uh, in in the contemporary context. And so uh, it really uh, is is just a, a stunning piece, even in, uh, by Ken Burns standards, uh, a stunning piece of work uh, that I think we thought
1: really needed to be highlighted. Yeah. And that history of what was happening here at that time is one of the things that caused some European Jews to choose Israel or what was earlier British mandate Palestine mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. a safe haven, one of the many points from the many points of view in the current and ongoing East conflict. And not to get into that again today, but this film is one more thing that directly or indirectly uh, feeds the complexity over well, there.
0: Yeah. And, I'll, and Brian, I'll just add one piece to this. like When we look at uh, the racist, restrictive uh, immigration laws that were passed in the United States in 1924... Uh, you know, the, the Johnson Immigration Restriction Act, actually, uh, which set the quotas for the number of people who could come into the country. It was specifically meant to prevent, uh, you know, so-called undesirable populations from, from coming. And that has disastrous consequences in the next decade. Uh, that directly complicates uh, the attempt of many Jews who were fleeing, uh, you know, the rise of fascism uh, it, it prevents them from being able to find safe haven in the United States. And so that's absolutely uh, accurate from your what you say. Uh, yeah.
1: And one of the things that we're planning for later in the year is a look back at that 1924 Restrictive Immigration Act in the United States, uh, because here we are at the 100th anniversary mm-hmm, of that, mm-hmm. and it had such um, wide-ranging effects on the United States from then until now. And we're seeing echoes as I guess you were just indicating Mm -hmm. of the kind of rhetoric that was around in the early 20s here in these early 20s. So we will leave it there for today with Jelani Cobb, who is the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University and presided last night over this year's DuPont Columbia Broadcast Journalism Award Ceremony on the campus. Thank you for highlighting, uh, first of all, for proposing this segment, which was your idea, and for highlighting some of the winners with us. And I always love talking to you, Jelani. Thank you for coming on.
0: Well, I will say one thing, Brian, which is that uh, we will uh, extend another invitation to you. We really want to have you in the room with us uh, for the DuPont Columbia Awards next year. So uh, just let us know and we'll we'll have a seat reserved for you.
1: I will check my calendar for January 2025. (laughs) Thanks, Jelani.
0: Okay, take care.